You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. Yes, well, we're going to look at communion this morning. What is the purpose of communion? My name's Dustin. If you uh, didn't hear that yet, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, Calvary, an elder is basically just a servant leader that God has given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And one of the main ways that we do that is through opening up God's word and trying to show the meaning of it and what's there so that the church can be equipped and changed and informed about what we're to do. So we're going to look at communion. What is the purpose of communion? Why did Jesus institute it all those years ago? And although there's many different expressions of it within the Christian community, what is it at its core? What does it do for those who partake of it? Those are some of the questions I'm going to try and answer this morning. Before we get into that and head there, uh, let's just pray. Let's ask for God's help. Father, I want to ask for the help of your spirit on my end for connecting my mind and my tongue to be able to convey what I found in your word clearly, boldly, truthfully, as is fitting. And I pray that everybody listening, God, that you would help them to tune their minds in and to pay attention so that they can hear what you have for them this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that of all the many things we're just going to throw out there this morning and look at, that you would apply individually to all the people here, to their hearts, for their good and their equipping and their satisfaction in Jesus. Pray these things so that Jesus gets honor and we get joy. Amen. Uh, Since this message is a topical one, we're going to be in a few different places in the Bible this morning, but mostly in Luke and in 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible yet, maybe you're checking out Christianity, you're new to this, this whole thing, well, just take one of the church Bibles as our gift to you. Make it your own. And if you're really new to the Bible and you don't know anything about it or where anything is, in the front of the Bible, there's a thing called a concordance. And it shows where the, the order of the books and what page they're on. And you'll notice it's broken into two sections. It's the Old Testament, which is Jesus Christ uh, concealed. And the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ revealed. You'll find both Luke and 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. So put a bookmark of, of some sort there so you'll be ready when we get there. I wonder what your experience of communion or the Lord's Supper has been. In my church growing up as a kid, we just did it quarterly, so not very often. But when we did do it, it was much like how we do it here at Calvary. The bread would be passed around. Um, You'd read the text, we'd pray, and then we'd partake together. And then we'd do the same thing with the cup. In the church that we went to, my wife and I uh, went to in Alberta before we moved here. It was a brethren church. They had two services. The first service was an hour long, and it was the breaking of bread service. So it's like an hour-long communion service. It was really great. It was, I think, my favorite service of the two. 
It, it was all spontaneous. People would request songs to sing. Some people would pray. Some men would get up and share something from the word. And then different people each week would pass out the bread and the cup to the people. One of the most interesting, memorable experiences of communion I ever had was in a sauna with all the male staff at Crozes Lake Bible Camp before our next camp was to start. We prayed by confession and thanks and intercession and praise to God for like 20 or 30 minutes in the sauna. And then we plunged into the icy waters of Crozes Lake. Upon the shore, we broke off huge, like big hunks of bread and ate them, thanking God for Jesus' broken body. Then we went back in the sauna, another intense time of prayer, back in the water, and then full cups of juice uh, to partake together, reminding us of Jesus' shed blood for us. It was a very bond, uh, binding time for us that reminded us that we are all part of one faith, the one faith, handed down to the saints. It was also a lot more like the meal that we see Jesus and his disciples sharing in the first one. In some churches, the elements are passed around like they are here. In some churches, you go up to the front to get them. I was at a Dutch Reformed church once, and we all made a f- line up the middle and went and got it from the front. Uh, in some churches, the elements are separate. In some, they're together as the bread's dipped in the cup. In some, we each have our own individual bread and cup. And in some, the bread and the cup are communal, shared by all. In some churches, the frequency is less often. And in some churches, the frequency is more often. But as I've looked at the main, some of the main passages concerning the Lord's Supper, these five traits stood out. And they're in your bulletin if you want to follow along. This is where we're headed. Communion is for memorial. It's for union. It is a proclamation. It's a participation. And it's for self-examination. So memorial, union, proclamation, participation, self-examination. That's where we're headed this morning. So first, communion is a memorial. Go over to Luke 22:19. In the church Bibles, that is on page 828. Luke 22:19. I'll read it for us. <clears throat> Luke 22:19. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, "This is my body, which is given for you." Do this in remembrance of me. So we see that Jesus wants us to do this thing together. And, and that when we do it, we come together and we do it, the purpose is for remembering him. It's not supposed to be some like empty ritual or a going through the motions. It's not for spiritual holiness points or anything like that. It's a memorial meal by which we remember. And we're not to just remember merely as like recollection, as in, oh yeah, Jesus died, I remember that. Not that kind of remembering. No, it's a venerating remembering, a purposeful remembering, a thankful remembering, and a recalibrating remembering. It sets us straight each time we do it. It's a remembering the sacrifice given in the broken body of Christ. It's a remembering of the eternal covenant by the blood of Christ. It is remembering whose we are. It's remembering our marriage vows to Christ, who is the husband of the church. It is remembering our cleansing that he brought about to bring us to God. It's remembering the turning point of all history. When Jesus completed his mission on the cross, it is a spiritual remembrance day. 
of the cosmic D-Day in which Jesus decisively triumphed over the powers of death and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is to be a remembering that sustains longing. If you look in the verses prior to what we just read, Jesus tells us that he's not going to eat or drink of it again until the coming of the kingdom of God. However, he tells us to eat and drink of it, of this particular meal, until the coming of the kingdom of God. So Jesus increases his longing for us by abstaining, and he sustains our longing for him by our partaking. Jesus increases his longing for us by abstaining, and he sustains our longing for him by our partaking. Every time we eat of it together, in remembrance of him, We are sustaining our longing for that day when we will eat of it all together and with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we remember what Jesus has done and what he will do. We remember where we came from and where we're headed. This is some, just some, of the remembering that we are to be engaged in when we have communion together. Okay, we're going to throw verse 20 on to Luke 20, 19 to 20. And we're going to look at union So let's read that. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper has a unifying quality for believers. Jesus shows us in, this, in these verses that his broken body and his poured out blood is in a particular way only for believers. There's an aspect of Jesus' death in which he died for the whole world. Like no one comes to the Father but through him, he said. Whoever wants to come can come. That's true. The offer of redemption is flung out wide and free into the world. You want to come? You can come. But there's also an aspect of Jesus' death in which he died particularly for believers to secure their ransom and to effectually save each one that the Father had chosen before the creation of the world. This is my body, he says, given for you. This is my blood, he tells us, poured out for you. The body and blood of Jesus belong to believers in a way that they don't belong to the rest of the world. That has a distinctly unifying quality to it among us. Like, just think of how many people in this church you would have nothing to do with if it weren't for the body and blood of Jesus. Nothing. You would share no commonality with a bunch of people in this church, I'm sure, as I do, if it weren't for the body and blood of Jesus. And that's the amazing thing about having union with Christ, that he's such a strong, unifying bond that we who are many and are so different are made one in Christ. This is the eternal bond of the family of God, and it's much thicker than blood. And this is a witness to the onlooking world of the truthfulness of Jesus. And especially at a time in history Right when there's so many fractions and galvanization and people taking sides, the union that the body and blood of Jesus produces amongst believers 
is like otherworldly in these days. So as you eat and drink of communion, I would encourage you to think about how it isn't just broken and poured out for you, but it's broken and poured out for us. I want you to commune with God. I want you to confess with God. I want you to have sacred time focused on God when you come to the Lord's table. But I also want you to come realizing that just as much as Jesus gave himself for you, he also gave himself for him over there and her beside you and him behind you. Then every time when we come together can become a time of communion with God and union with God's people around you. I sometimes wonder if our individualistic North American mindsets are with us in communion, because I know they are with me, so maybe you're like me. Like, yes, we wait for each other to eat and drink, and in that way we do it together. But is the whole rest of the time, for you, as it often is for me, a personal experience alone with God while surrounded by a bunch of people? I'm not vouching for an either-or here, but a both-and, both-and. Jesus would have us both commune and confess with him and deliberately strengthen our bond with each other in communion. We, who are many, partake of one body, and therefore we form one body in Christ with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So every week when we do communion, we strengthen our union with Christ and our union with Christ's family. Let's go over a bit to the right to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians 10.16, we're going to look at participation. That's on page 900 in the church Bibles. 1 Corinthians 10.16 says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Well, the first thing that I thought when I came to this text is, what on earth does that mean? What is a participation in the body? What is a participation in the blood? What is a participation? Well, when you think about participating in a sport, you're agreeing to conduct yourself in keeping with that sport, right? You'll use the equipment of that sport. Uh, you'll follow the rules of that sport. You'll wear the clothing of that sport, and you try to win according to how that sport defines triumph. Well, in like manner, when we participate in the body and the blood of Christ, we are agreeing to conduct ourselves in keeping with Christ. We're, we're aligning with him. We're pursuing what he says is right and good and helpful. We're putting off that old self. We're putting on the new self, created to be like Christ Jesus. We're actively pursuing victory over the powers of darkness, the world, and even our own sinful nature. We participate in communion because we're already and ongoingly participating in Christ. So we participate in communion because we are already and ongoingly participating in Christ. We participate in the body of Christ by remembering that a servant is not above his master. Jesus took up his cross, and he tells each one of us to take up ours and follow him. 
We participate in his body when we remember that his broken, pulverized, crushed under the wrath of God body is what it took to make people like you and me saints. And then we live humbly and thankfully in light of that. We participate in his broken body when we identify with the church, which is his body, and especially when she's mistreated in the world. We participate in his body when we love and care for one another because we're his body, because nobody ever hated their own body. You feed it, you care for it, just like Christ does the church. All these things and more are how we participate in the body of Christ And when we participate together in the symbol of his broken body and communion, we're affirming and we're testifying that we are indeed partakers and participants of Christ. We participate in the blood of Christ by living according to his eternal blood covenant. The covenant terms are, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. So, to participate in the blood means that I'm not going to try and add my good works or my righteousness to what Jesus has already done for me. I'm not going to do good to try and gain merit or something. I'm going to do good because it's obedient. It's right. Neither, neither will I live happily for sin. Because how can we who have died to sin still live in it? To participate in the blood means to glory in the power and the efficacy of its cleansing power. Like, yeah, we need to turn from sin. And we must agree with God about our sin when he's convicting us and tell it to our brothers and sisters where we need to so that all may be in the light. But no, we're not not supposed to wallow in our sin as if if the, the blood has no power to cleanse and transform. All these things and more are how we participate in the blood of Christ. And when we participate together in the symbol of his poured out blood in communion, we are affirming and testifying that we are indeed participants and partakers of Christ. So to summarize the participation section, we participate in the body and blood of communion at church because we participate in the body and blood of Christ in life, in all of life. Okay, flip one page over, or one chapter, to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to look at proclamation. 1 Corinthians 11.26. It says this, 1 Corinthians 11.26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is a visible, tangible, bodily proclamation of the death of Jesus. It is a visible, tangible, bodily proclamation to the world, to the angelic powers, and even to the church itself. To the world. To the world, communion proclaims the death of Christ as fact. Every time we observe communion, and the more we're known for it, We are testifying and proclaiming to the historical fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. As often as we eat it and drink it, we are keeping that proclamation forefront in the world. 
Other things are always vying for the spotlight and deeming themselves as the most important things in the world. But the church's communion in the Lord's Supper is a steady voice saying, no, no, the death of Christ is the important thing in the world. The death of Christ and how one responds to it is paramount in the world. We also proclaim to the world that just as the body and blood of Christ is our only hope, so it is their only hope. The only difference is it's a hope that we are continually clinging to. Like We've staked our whole eternity on the body and blood of Jesus. There's only one way to God the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way out and the only way through, through this life. And if you've never come to Jesus, you're checking Christianity out, wondering what this is all about, you can come to him now, and you should come to him. You should. Even now, you can obey the command of God to repent and believe in the gospel, the good news about Jesus. To repent, it just means that you're going to turn away from the life you're now living. Turn away from sin, from self, from your supposed autonomy. You're going to turn from that and turn and put your faith in Christ instead. You take his free offer of mercy. You live your days dependent on him, filled with his grace. You're going to stop being a rebel against God and become his joyful child instead. And you trust Jesus as your only Savior and you follow him as your only Lord. You could do that now. There's nothing stopping you. And you should. And if you do, you need to let somebody you know Uh, some mature Christian or something know about that or come talk to me or one of the leaders after the service because Christianity is a thing that we do together. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a thing we do together because we obey Jesus' command to love one another. Communion is also a visible, tangible, bodily proclamation to the angelic powers looking on. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So the first thing that Jesus did when he died was go and proclaim victory to the spirits of evil and opposition, which are in prison, which he imprisoned all those years ago. In the words of John Owen, Jesus proclaimed the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. The death of Christ was the death blow to the enemies of God and God's people. And our observance of communion, our proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, is the death knell of that conquering death. Every time we have communion, it's a sounding of the funeral bells to the forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It reminds them that their destiny is sealed, their time is short, and Jesus is coming back with his rod of justice in hand. Communion is also a visible, tangible, bodily proclamation to the gathered church. I say the gathered church because five times in this little section on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, five times Paul describes them as come together. This is a thing we come together and do. It's a thing that we come together and we see each other doing. It's visible. It's a thing that we come together and experience together. It's tangible. And it's a thing we do, come together and do in person. It's bodily. Communion is a thing we do when we come together. And we must come together. 
the proclamation of the death of Christ, both by our words out in the world and by our communion in the church, is more important than my life or my freedom. And when we come together and we share in his body and his blood in communion, I am saying to you and you are saying to me that the work of Jesus on the cross is the most important thing in the world. It is worth defying the dictates of the authorities of the world to observe it. It must not be silenced because it is a proclamation. You can't proclaim silently, and it is most assuredly not silent, but proclaimed when we come together and we do it. The last trait we're going to look at concerning communion this morning is self-examination. Still in 1 Corinthians 11, just hop down to verse 28. It says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're to come to the Lord's table already ready. Already ready. We need to participate in it on purpose, thoughtfully, and with our minds and hearts actively engaged. We can't come flippantly, and we mustn't come thoughtlessly or routinely. We're to examine ourselves and then eat and drink. What are we examining for? Well, for sure, one of the things is where our heart affections are at. Because if you look at the verses surrounding verse 28, you'll see that the Corinthians' heart affections were way out of whack. They were crazy off the rails. Like they had factions, they had selfishness, they had drunkenness, they had gorging, and this was all at the Lord's Supper. They were not discerning the body and the blood in what they were doing. And so, when they had communion, they were actually eating and drinking judgment on themselves. If that's how they were behaving at church, you can only imagine how it was in the rest of their lives. They needed to examine themselves and get some things straightened out with the Lord. But just so we're clear, when we examine ourselves, we're not looking for perfection. We're not like, oh, am I perfectly following Jesus? Then I can eat and drink. Perfection doesn't happen until that last part of salvation, glorification, when we either die and see Jesus and become like him, or when we are alive and see him coming on the clouds of heaven and become like him. For now, we're to be in the pursuit of holiness. So that's what we're examining. Am I in pursuit? Not perfectly, but am I in pursuit of holiness and pursuit of Jesus? Am I chasing down the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Getting ready for communion is a great time to confess sin. It's a great time to confess sin. Like even in an earnest pursuit of God, we all know we will have sinned in the last week. We will have done things that Jesus had to die for, even as a Christian believer. Well, bring that to God. Bring it to him. He'll forgive you and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what the broken body and the poured out blood are for. It's for sin cleansing. Confess to God. Confess together as families and friends. Confess to those in the family of God where you need to. Like, don't come to the table with a weight of sin on your back. That's what the table's for. That's what it's for. Now, on the other side of the same coin, examine yourself that you're not using the Lord's Supper as an excuse for sin, an excuse to live however you want and then be absolved each week or something like that. The meal is about forgiveness of sins, but it's about forgiveness of sins for the broken and the repentant. That's what it's about. 
We must not turn Jesus' death into a license for sin and to do whatever we please. Jesus died for sins so that we might not live for sin anymore. That's the reason he died. That's what he's after, to destroy the works of the devil. I think it's pretty clear by this point in the sermon, but communion is only for believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So when you examine yourself, make sure you've considered that. Like if you're, if you're not a Christian yet, don't, don't partake of this. It's not for you yet. Communion is only for believers. But one aspect of believers-only communion, I wonder if we might not have really examined or thought about, is regarding our own children. Because we need to be careful and thoughtful with communion regarding our children. We're always teaching them. We're always training them, even when we aren't aware of it, in the things we do and don't do. We're always teaching them. And we should only let our children participate if they are Christians. To let our non-Christian children participate in the body and blood of Christ is sending them the wrong message. It says, this examination stuff, it isn't, it isn't really true. It isn't, it's not a big deal. And the judgment associated with eating in an unworthy manner, it's, it's empty. And God doesn't really mean what he says when he says things. I don't think we want to be teaching those sort of things to our kids. You'll, each family will have to sort it out for your own family, but how Kat and I have come to determine if our kids can participate in communion is if they've been baptized. So as Ma- Pastor Mark said last week in his uh, baptism sermon, baptism is like the vows of a marriage ceremony. Communion is like a wedding ring. It's a reminder and a sign of those vows. So it just makes sense then that communion would follow baptism. <clears throat> Whether or not your child should be baptized, it requires your discernment, and it's tricky. It's, I find it crazy tricky to discern if my kids, to the best of my ability, are at the point where they're following Jesus for themselves and not just because I do. That's tricky. But we must help them determine that. God has given us to them as their best resource in discerning such a thing. Another point to be aware of in self-examination, is that we don't let communion become common in our hearts. As I said at the beginning, there's lots of different expressions of communion in the Christian community and lots of different frequencies, right, of how often. The only command I see in the text I looked at is as often. Jesus said, as often as you eat and drink of it. So to me, that, that says that the frequency is left up to each individual church, And the elders of Calvary, we've determined that communion will have a weekly frequency. That's what we want. The main thing that Christians are about is the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That's our main thing. That's what draws us together. His work on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father in power. When we come together, that's the main thing we're gathering around and focusing our lives on. Communion is the reminder and the image of that. Some people have come to us with the concern that if we do communion every week, it might lose its sacredness. It might become common. Well, I've found in life that everything becomes common. Everything becomes common except by thankfulness, intention, and thoughtfulness. Your marriage will become common. Your kids will even become common. Eating becomes common. Sermons will become common. 
the comforting love of God and the church can become common. And your blessed life will become common except by thankfulness, intention, and thoughtfulness. I hope, I hope, I think we haven't dive, dove deep into any of these five things this morning. I've just given you a smattering to chew on kind of thing. But I hope in what I've given you this morning in this sermon, there's enough for you to be thankful, intentional, and thoughtful about so that you don't let communion become common to you. I often struggle with application like in the sermon. Okay, now how do I apply it to the church and what should we do? What are the action points? This one's easy. Let's have communion. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.